it's called the morning shakeout. And like, for me, you know, the, the morning shakeout is like something I started doing in college. I would, I would run, um, like three or four miles real easy in the morning before doing our afternoon workout. And oftentimes I did it by myself, but sometimes I could get a teammate or two to go along with me. And we would just sort of like, you know, shoot the breeze about whatever was going on, whether it was, you know, on our team, amongst our friend groups, uh, in the sport of running. Um, and because I'm such a big running dork, a lot of it was in the sport of running. And, and that's really the, the spirit that I created the, the newsletter in. I wanted it to feel like, oh, this is, this would be like going out for like just a short casual run, you know, conversational pace. And like, we're talking about, you know, the, I mean, not that any races are happening right now, but the Boston Marathon that happened last weekend and like what some of those storylines would be. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Runners of the Bay podcast. Today's episode is with Mario Fraioli. Uh, if you listen to running podcasts, then you've probably heard of Mario Fraioli in the Morning Shakeout. He also has a weekly newsletter called The Morning Shakeout that's released each Tuesday. Bridget and I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, we talked to him a few days after he released his 38 things that he learned as he turned 38. So we use that list as kind of an anchor for this conversation. And, you know, I think you can hear it in his podcast and in his newsletter, but also in this interview. I just really appreciate the thoughtfulness and curiosity that Mario has, not only as an athlete, but also as a coach and a student of the sport. And it was fun to sort of dig a little bit deeper into things. Um, We talked about his literary influences, his style as a writer. So hopefully some things you haven't heard before and you'll get to know Mario a little bit better. Uh, Bridget, what did you think? Yeah, I loved it. It was fun to structure the interview around the things that he shared in that birthday post. Um, I also shared a very awkward story about me being too shy to say hello to him the first time that we met. Um, and, uh, we talked a little bit about things like not the value of not wearing a watch, um, which is something that I've actually like implemented a little bit more since this interview. Um, and one other thing that stuck out to me was we had a conversation about kind of mood following action. Um, and I think that's something that especially right now I found really helpful and kind of have circled back to a few times, um, especially with COVID and the pandemic and everything that's going on you know, kind of finding myself in a funk and then thinking about our conversation um, has kind of pulled me out of it. Uh, The other thing that I loved was we kicked off this conversation by talking about him on his birthday, taking down his high school um, time in the mile. Um, And so that was a great, a great kind of just pure running conversation about, you know, going to those really uncomfortable places and kind of what you find there. And that just got me kind of excited to take on the mile. So um, yeah, it was a great conversation. Nice. Any mile time trial plans coming up for you? I've got to figure out my glute. I'm having an issue with my left glute. But once that is solved, yeah, I think the mile is so fun. We, um, yeah, we've talked to a few people now, I feel like, um, in this podcast about going out for the mile. It's just such an approachable distance, especially right now. You know, obviously much easier than going after a 
any of the the longer stuff. Yeah, I think all of these marathoners are turning into milers. <laughs> um, exactly. Well, with that, we'll uh, leave you to the episode, and we hope you enjoy this episode with Mario Fraioli. So today we're chatting with Mario Fraioli. Thank you for joining us, Mario. Thank you so much for having me. So Mario and I have had the pleasure of meeting a few times now, but the first time we met is kind of a funny story, and I'd actually love to hear it from your perspective, Mario. Oh, I was going to throw this back at you, but sure, I'll take it first, and then you can correct me where I'm wrong. I'm terrible at remembering dates. I'll get that out of the way early on, but I believe it was, I know it was on an airplane, and I believe it was on the way to the Boston Marathon, I want to say 2017. Um, I can't remember if it was 2017 or 18. I go every year, um, but I can't remember, I can't remember exactly when It was actually it was. 2019. It was more recent. Really? It was last year? No yeah. way. Yeah, it was God, last year. My, my mind is like gone at this point. <laughs> um, wow, I thought it was a lot longer than that. Okay, well, so it was last year on, on the airplane to the Boston Marathon. And I can't remember the exact details of it. I believe Emily Krause was involved. Yeah. She may have texted me and said, my friends are sitting across the way from you. <laughs> yeah. And I may or may not have noticed that those quote unquote friends were doing double takes and it struck me <laughs> as a little odd. And then I just, um, I think I just reached across, not reached across the yeah. aisle, but like spoke across the aisle and introduced myself. Yeah. So, so we, I recognized you waiting, like waiting to get on the airplane. And I turned to my partner, Adam, who's also a runner. And I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. that's Mario. And, uh, and he was like, Oh, you should, you should go over and say hi. Like, you know, and I was like, Oh, no, he's busy. Like, I what would I say? I don't know. And then I think I don't remember whether Adam or I texted Emily, but Emily Krause, who's also an athlete of yours. Um, and a friend of ours, we texted her and just said, like, oh, Mario's on our flight. And then she said to us, like, you should say hi. And still, I was like, meh, he's busy. I'm not going to do that. And then we ended up sitting across the aisle from each other. And so um, I think at one point, actually, Adam was giving you side eye and actually saw a text from Emily on your computer and was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Super creepers. Yeah, super creepers. Um, but then, yeah, still, we waited for you to make the move. So, <laughs> um, but it was funny. And actually, then we ended up having a great conversation and gave us some tips on on how to how to handle how to handle Boston. And here we are a year exactly. later. Who to thunk it? Exactly. That's so funny. I have a funny airplane story, kind of. I mean, I don't know. It, I saw an athlete or a celebrity on, on my flight. I ran the Fifth Avenue Mile in, I guess it was in September. And then I had to um, hop on a plane to LaGuardia to go, to go to a conference in Boston. And I'm like waiting to get on the plane and sitting right behind me sort of in the area was Caroline Wozniacki, the tennis player. And I was such a creeper. I like took a selfie of myself. <laughs> I didn't say anything, but I was like, ooh, who's she talking to? Is she texting Serena Williams? Anyway, 
that's just my most recent airplane story. Have to get in there and share mine. Um, so that's funny. So that's uh, so Mario and Bridget have a nice little history together. Um, but you know, I think that both Bridget and I are are huge fans, Mario, of your podcast and everything that you've contributed to the running community, both um, from your podcast, your newsletter, you know, back at, in your days at Competitor Magazine and. It's um, been really nice to, to sort of get to know you a little bit over email as you've given us tips for our podcast, but um, as sort of a fixture in the Bay Area, both in terms of how you contribute to the community of running an athlete yourself and also a coach, we were really excited to have you on the show um, to, to learn more about you and, and to get your perspective on some things. So we're grateful that well, you're here. Uh, an honor to be on the Runners of the Bay podcast. I love the idea. I am firmly planted here myself, even though I have Massachusetts roots, but I consider myself now a full-fledged runner of the Bay. Where in Massachusetts are you from exactly? So I grew up in a small town called Auburn, which is right next to a city called Worcester. Mm. And actually, before I moved to California 10 years ago, I lived in Worcester for two years um, after, after it's a long story, but, uh, but before moving to California, I lived in Worcester for two years, but central Massachusetts is okay. what I tell people. And did you ever have an accent? Cause I don't hear any of it. <laughs> I have one according to my wife when I'm around my friends, <laughs> it will come out. So environment definitely affects how I speak, but I, I mean, I don't think anyone who has an accent actually realizes they have an accent. It's other people who call them out on it. And I never get called out on it in California. But when I am back home, especially when I'm with my wife and we're around our friends and they have very thick accents, which I actually notice more now that I've been away for a mm-hmm. while, it comes out mm-hmm. in in certain circumstances. That's funny. Yeah, my dad is from Boston and he is... I'm just going to age him on the show. He's 77. And so he's been in California since he was like, uh, okay, so he's been here for over 50 years. Um, but when he talks to someone else from Boston or when he talks to me about the Boston Marathon, <laughs> it is like he is back in Brookline on a pond playing hockey with his cousins. Um, it's just full on. It's it's it. pretty funny. Yeah. It's it's funny how that happens. My sister lives in the UK and she's been there about 10 years mm-hmm. now. And that is home for her. <clears throat> Excuse me. And she's developed a British accent. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I hear it now and I'm like, "What what the heck happened to you?" <laughs> and um yeah. and it's just that she's, you know, she's been there for 10 years. Her wife is British, mm-hmm. all her friends and family are British and she just picked there it up. Go. And uh, it's it's pretty amazing how that happens. That's yeah. crazy. That's hilarious. So we thought it would be fun. Um, we really enjoyed, first of all, happy birthday. because uh, Thank you. Uh, happy, yes. And we really enjoyed what you released this week in, in your newsletter about, you know, the 38 lessons that you've learned over your 38 mm-hmm. years. And so we thought we would actually dive a little deeper into that because we thought it was it was really great. You gave us some great content and, and a way to set this up. Um so we thought we'd start with uh, your recent mile PR um, okay. and your your mile time trial. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about why you decided to do that and and what that was like? 
Yeah, so I had been thinking about what I wanted to do for my 38th birthday to, to commemorate it. And I mean, the obvious things would be to go run 38 miles mm-hmm. or 38K. And and I just haven't been running that much and I have zero interest in running that long <laughs> right now. So I just, I wipe those right off um, immediately. And then I thought, I'm like, well, you know, 38 minutes, like it's kind of boring. Um, and then I was like, well, I'm like, I could you know, I'm like, I could probably run like 438 for the mile right now and just have that numerical connection, mm-hmm. just taking my, my age and putting it after four. And it's a pretty, um, I think appropriate challenge for me right now, just given where my fitness is at and some of the workouts that I've, I've done, I'm like, I could, I could probably do that. And that was my, that was my initial thought. And then Somehow, like, I just came to realize, I was like, huh, I graduated high school like 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. about now. And when I graduated high school, I remember in the weeks before graduation, we had our championship meets. And and in the last two, I'd run, or two of the last three, I'd run my mile PR, which was 436.9. And then I ran my two mile PR, which was 950.2. And I was like, huh, well, I was thinking of running a 438 mile anyway, like 436.9 is not you know, that much faster. And I think there's something kind of cool from a storytelling standpoint, at least the story I'm telling to myself (laughs) of trying to beat high school me um, and trying to run faster than this time that I ran 20 years ago. And it's not my all time personal best. Like I'm, I'm not going to touch that if I'm being realistic. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, that wasn't even a concern. I was like, you know, this is, this would be kind of like a fun thing to, to do right now. And I still have my high school Jersey. It's in my dresser drawer. It's been there for the past two decades. I could pull that out, uh, if it's still intact and, and wear it and, and just to, just to see if I could do it or how close I would come. Uh, and I haven't raced a mile in a while. And I think part of it was just to see if I could put myself in that place that you need to be when you're, when you're running a a fast mile. So that was my thinking behind it. Yeah, I love that. I love you wrote, you know, that like the mile in the you wrote in the morning shakeout that it was kind of a medium just to push yourself and get Mm -hmm. to that like, uncomfortable place and see, you know, kind of how you respond. Like, how do you mentally and physically prepare when you're, you know, trying to get to that place? That's a good question. When I was racing the mile frequently in high school and college, I I didn't really think about it because that was the distance Mm -hmm. that I was doing all the time. Um, so it's just trying to improve from one race to the next. And that was how hard you ran at this point of my life where I'm not racing many miles and I'm not running that hard all the time. Um, it was spending some time in the, in the days leading up to it, just remembering how sharp that end of the spectrum (laughs) was. And, one of my strategies going into races or anything that's hard in, I don't mean this to sound dark or anything, but I try and paint the absolute worst case scenario in my head. And by doing that, like, or when I do that, I'd say like 99 out of a hundred times, it's never as bad as I've made it up to be in my head, but going into it, I have already just accepted how much it's going to suck. And, and I, I'm not surprised when I get to that place. And I think that, I think that helps me get through whether it's a mile or it's, you know, a hard situation that I'm dealing with in life, whether it's personal, professional, or 
or otherwise. So that's what I I did in the week leading up to it. I just tried to remember the miles that I've, I've raced and how much they took out of me and how hard it was and, you know, what that like what that point felt like at about three quarters of a mile mm-hmm. into it when every part of your body is just screaming at you to stop your legs are heavy your lungs are on fire and you still have to run for another 440 yards yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i think it's it's so it's so interesting to to hear i think it's so smart to do the to practice what the worst case scenario is and having run a bunch of miles you can you've had probably really bad miles so you know how bad it, it actually can can oh, feel yeah. um but the thing that you also wrote about is like how kind of satisfying it was so not only did were you able to um to kind of best your 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 uh high school self but just that feeling of like you got everything out of yourself on that day yeah. um and i think it's really easy to feel that level of like satisfaction um when you when the time matches up and you feel like oh okay like not only can i like step away from the time but i feel like this that just the effort is enough but i'm curious like if you had put in the same effort and it hadn't resulted in you besting your high school self, like, do you think you would have tried again or would you still have felt as satisfied by the effort? I still would have been as satisfied by the effort. And in all honesty, I'll probably try again in (laughs) several weeks just for myself on no specific or particular date. Um, just to see if I can go a little bit faster at some point when we are able to run with friends again, and tracks open up, I may go to a track and see if I can go a little bit faster. But yeah, I mean, I, I know for me, like it was like for me, like racing, racing a mile or running at that intensity is a really scary thing because it hits you right away. And it can be really easy when you start to see it coming to back off. And I, that's what I, that's what I wanted to get out of it more than anything else. I wanted to like get to that moment we have to make the decision to continue pushing on or pull off the throttle just a little bit and go into survival mode. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you'll still do, you'll still do okay. Um, but you've sort of saved yourself a little bit. And I didn't want to save myself. I kind of wanted to go to that place where I, I wanted to be completely wrecked afterward. <laughs> and, and I, it's just a feeling I can't really quantify mm-hmm. that. I mean, I, I'm, you know, on one level, I'm, I'm certainly excited that I was able to run faster than I did 20 years ago when I was in high school. But if it had been like 442 and I still had that feeling, like that's just what it was going to be mm-hmm. on the day. And I, I would have been just as happy that I went to that place regardless of what the numbers said mm-hmm. on my watch. Yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting you're talking about the mile, but I'm thinking about sort of that decision that you have to make in any race where you're going really hard of do I back off a little bit? Um, knowing that, you know, maybe I still can achieve my goal or just giving myself a, w- a sort of a, a way out or do I keep my foot on the throttle and sort of push past that physical limit? And I, I find myself having to make that decision in workouts too. And when I make mm-hmm. that decision in workouts to keep going, it, it inevitably helps me in my racing. It makes the decision in racing a little bit easier. Yeah, because it's ingrained in you. And I, right. I think that's spot on. And you had mentioned a little while ago about my 
list that I made for the newsletter, my, mm-hmm. my 38 things for my 38th birthday. And I think what I'm getting at here is what I wrote for number 18. And it's like adversity is just an opportunity to see how you respond to what's mm-hmm. being thrown at you. And that's really what I wanted to see. I, I mean, I, I knew because I've raced the mile before that I was going to get to that moment of adversity and I was going to have to make a decision. Do I, do I back off and kind of coast in or do I push on and risk, you know, possibly, blowing up. And I, and that's the decision that I hope that I would make in that situation, but you never know till you, till you get there. Um, because in that moment, it's just, you know, it's, yeah, it's just like, it's so, it's so intense. And, you know, the desire to just like back off just a little bit, and especially in a situation like this, where it's just me, I mean, I'm not racing anyone else. It, you know, it wasn't an actual race. It wasn't like someone was going to pass me. Like this was a, a, an intimate challenge for me. It was like deeply, personal yeah. and and that's what I wanted to to get out of it and then um I I mean I knew when I was done I was like okay I did exactly what I wanted to do and then I was reminded of it the rest of the day because my throat was on fire <laughs> um my glutes were sore through like Monday yeah. um just because again I, I don't really go to that place much anymore so I was asking my body to do something that it hasn't done in in quite a while yeah. and my body, especially at age of 38, will, will let you know, um, you know, when you're, when you're disrupting it like that. Yeah. I'm almost 36 and, uh, I cannot just get up in the morning and run like I used to a lot more difficult. Yeah. I I mean, (laughs) when I was in college, when I was in college, um, I could, I could get out of bed at is going to sound crazy, like nine o'clock in the morning, which I never do anymore and be out running by, you know, nine, 10, mm-hmm. nine, 15. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. Now I need like an hour and yeah. a half. Got to have the coffee, got to do the prehab routine, got to do some mobility, use the bathroom a couple times, and then I'm ready to go out the door. <laughs> yep. For sure. Um, so we, we actually want to shift to sort of your list and to go into a little more detail on that and, and, talk through some of these life lessons that you've learned um, and what they mean to you and and to go a little deeper. So one of your lessons was uh, once you get fancy, fancy gets broken. Can you talk a little bit more Mm -hmm. about what you mean by that? Yeah. So two things before I do. One, this was not an original idea to create this list. And I, and I, wrote that out um, in the newsletter mm-hmm, right. and at the, the intro to it. Um, I had read something a couple of weeks ago by a guy named Kevin Kelly, who's actually pretty well known here in the Bay Area. He was the founding editor of Wired Magazine. He did a similar piece called 68 Bits of Unsolicited Advice for his 68th birthday. Mm-hmm. And a good friend of mine, his name is Chris Corbin. His wife is professional triathlete, Lindsay Corbin. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been doing a list like this since he was 31. And every year he adds to it. So those two guys inspired me to to partake in this exercise on my own. And it was a really good exercise to sit down for a few hours and write these out for myself and to think about these life lessons that I've learned and who I've learned them from. Mm-hmm. And I actually had like a bunch of old notebooks out because I would write a lot of these things down when I was either listening to a podcast or I'd have a conversation with someone if it was like my dad or my grandparents and they gave me some, you know, bit of wisdom that I didn't want to forget, I I would write it down. So I I actually had to go and like kind of curate this list, which was a great exercise. Um, And now that I have it, I can reference it myself. And then like, well, I have this platform with the morning shakeout and I can share it with others. And, you know, if I'm taking something away from it um, 
to me, it's, it's very personal because I can tell you where I got each of these from, but anyone else who's reading it can take something away as well. So to that specific one, um, once you get fancy, fancy gets broken. So I was listening to an episode of the Tim Ferriss show probably a year or two ago. Um, and it was with Morgan Spurlock and that was a line that I wrote in my notebook from from that show. And I don't know if it's his originally, a lot of these things get passed down, but I think it applies to, or you can apply it to so many different areas of your life. So I think about it in a coaching context. And when you're writing a training schedule for an athlete, you can fall into this trap of, of overcomplicating it and trying to like write out this really intricate training plan or these, you know, really detailed workouts. And more often than not, that's when I end up getting more questions from the athletes. If we need to change something, it becomes a lot harder to do. Um, what I'm trying to write in there, just, it's just not really clear. So like applying this, once you get fancy, fancy gets broken to it. It's like, all right, just try and be as like clear, concise and direct Mm -hmm. as possible. Um, because that in this situation of writing a training schedule for an athlete or writing out a workout, um, you know, that that's, what's effective. Once I started trying to get fancy with it, um, you know, something inevitably broke. And, you know, I think I can apply that to writing as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, once you start to, try and get flowery with your language, um, adding in all kinds of adjectives and adverbs that, you know, might make a sentence sound more impressive. I mean, all it does is distract from the reader. Like you, you get, then you have a broken sentence, you know, it's, it's too fancy. So it's like, just try and be, you know, as, as clear and concise as, as possible. And I mean, we could go through a number of different mm-hmm. examples where the same principle applies. Um, but that's, you know, for, for me, like that's how I think of it primarily. And, and Morgan Spurlock was talking about it in regard to filmmaking. Um, and I mean, same sort of thing, same sort of thing as like, you know, writing when it, when it comes to that sort of thing, anytime you would try to get fancy, like something would break. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I just think that's like, you think about it and it's like, huh, that's a really profound statement. Uh, and it's true like 99% of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. love that. <laughs> Like keep it simple. It doesn't have to be always that hard or complex. Um, I see that in a lot of areas. Simple is not easy. Um, you know, it, it can be really hard to distill something down to its essence, whether it's a sentence in a paragraph or it's a workout in a training plan. Um, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't, usually there's more effort True. that goes into that, but you know, the, the whole idea is that that's what it is. It's like, you're, you know, you're being effective rather than trying to like be fancy and impressive. Yeah. You know, that it's actually true. This is kind of a, a bad example, but I find myself when I'm like wanting to write a tweet of, I, I draft it and it's usually more than the, whatever, how many 280 characters mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And then it takes a lot of effort to sort of distill it down into its most basic parts or even an email when you're trying to collaborate with someone and it starts out really long and complex. And then the hard part or the work is in making it um, a little bit more, more simple or clear. So that's true. It's, it's actually more effort in a lot of cases. Yeah. Constraints can be really good for that. Um, Certainly in creative endeavors, but if you really think about it, you can 
apply different types of constraints to various areas of, of your life. That's one of the things I, I like about Twitter, and I'm taking a break from it right now for other reasons, but I like that I only have 280 characters to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My professional background is in writing and editing. I spent several years at Competitor Magazine and dot com. And prior to that, I worked for newspapers and newspapers in particular, since it was an actual physical product that went out and we only had some days, you know, four pages to work with in the sports department, or maybe Sunday we had 10 pages to work with, or, you know, even um, bringing it in further, certain stories you'd have, we would call them inches in the newspaper. You had a certain amount of inches to work with. So, you know, you might have this big, long news story, but you've only got a small amount of space to squeeze it into uh, and you've got to edit it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, for me, like I, that stresses a lot of people out. I love doing that sort of thing because it forces you to ask yourself like, okay, well, what's really important Mm -hmm. here? Like if this is all I've got um, and in the case of a newspaper article, like I've got to convey important information, what do I cut out? Um, And I mean, I've just always, I've always just enjoyed that type of, you know, constrained thinking. Yeah. Yeah. There's something kind of nice too about using like, or that anchors you in this way of thinking, but when you repeat like the word, he repeats the word fancy, because I feel like fancy is also like so much about like what someone else is seeing, like you're trying to impress someone else rather than just exactly like saying what you, what you're trying to say and not worrying about like what other people are, or how other people are interpreting it. Um, so one other, the next one that we wanted to talk to you a little bit about was run without a watch at least once a week, more often if you dare. Um, so why do you think this is important? Uh, well, so I, to rewind, um, I didn't own a GPS watch until I moved here to the Bay Area in 2014 because mm. I didn't have a need for one. Um, I had no idea what Strava was till I moved up here. I realized you can't really be on Strava without a GPS watch. And I got sucked into yeah. it. And I started wearing the GPS watch for everything. You start becoming reliant on it. Um, I, I mean, I knew what a GPS watch was, obviously, before I came up here and with my group of athletes that I coached in San Diego um, prior to moving up to the Bay. I, I mean, a lot of them were just obsessed with it um, to the point where we would be on the track doing an interval workout and they would get like three or four strides in and they'd look down at their watch to see if they were on pace. And I'd have to like scream at them. I'm like, it's not even calibrated yet. Um, and I would actually have them like you know, take their watches off and, and I'd hold my hat out and have them put the watches in the hat, um, and do intervals, you know, with, without a watch. Cause I would yell out the splits to them if they, they needed it. And I, I think for me, like, I'm glad I didn't grow up, um, in an era when GPS watches were ubiquitous because it taught me to really feel things out as, yeah. as a runner, um, and as an athlete. And I think that's one of the best skills that, I personally developed as an athlete. And so when I started running with a GPS watch, and I mean, I was, you know, at that point, 32 years Mm -hmm. old. um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I had already, you know, I I realized I'm like, okay, this is like a trap that you can easily, Mm -hmm. you know, fall into. Mm -hmm. So I've had to be very careful with it myself. And I get to a point where I mean, I, 
you know, now I, I have a good relationship with my GPS watch and I don't rely on it, but at least once a week, every Monday I go for a little run and I know the route it's four miles. Um, I don't wear a watch at all. A lot of times I've been on a track in a while, but a lot of times now I'll do a track workout and I won't wear the GPS watch, um, because I know the track is 400 meters yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I just want to be able to, you know, feel it, um, rather than like mm -hmm. have the watch tell me whether or not I'm having a, you know, having a good workout. And so I do that a lot in my, my coaching as mm -hmm. well. Um, because I do have a lot of athletes now, especially those who are trying to qualify for something, whether it's Boston or the Olympic trials, they know exactly what pace they have to run. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. they fall into this trap of overanalyzing on an almost daily basis, even on their easy runs. It's like, oh, well, you know, I, I was like, 845 pace today and usually i'm like eight minute pace i'm like well did it feel easy right. um <laughs> you know and, and oftentimes like the my solution to that is i'm like let's just take your watch off like let's mm -hmm. just not even run with it like most runners have like their loops that they run yeah. right we're creatures of habit so you know we have our four mile loop our six mile loop our 10 mile loop so if you know you're going out on what's supposed to be like an easy eight mile run. And I have always said that easy is a feeling it's, it's not a number. Yeah. Well, you don't mm -hmm. need the watch then just toss it yeah. um, and just go out there. And, and if you're ever in doubt, ask yourself, like, does this feel easy? No, well back off. Um, and it's just like mm -hmm. teaching, you know, I think it's just like reinforcing, um, the importance of running by feel and, and learning how to run by feel and engaging effort. So I like to encourage my athletes to do that at least once a week. Um, because I think if you go too far the other way and say, don't run with a watch at all or run with like a basic chrono watch, especially if you're used to running with a GPS, like that's too much of a shift. Mm -hmm. So it's just trying to, mm -hmm. just trying to find that balance. Yeah. I, um, I typically wear my watch all the time and I, I even sleep with it and I, but I loosen it while I sleep and, Two days ago, I woke up and my watch was off. And I was like, I don't remember taking this off. Where, Where is my watch? And I'm looking all over my apartment for my watch. And finally, I like I look through my bed and it wasn't there. And then I, I'm like asking my boyfriend, hey, have you seen my watch? And I'm freaking out because I can't possibly start my run without my watch. Like, right? That's like shoes, right? Yeah. And um you know, then finally I pulled, I, I looked under my pillow and there was my watch. So I must have taken it off in my sleep. Um, but it was just like a good reminder of, okay, I actually don't need this to go and run. And <laughs> But the amount of anxiety I felt of not knowing where my watch was, I was like, oh, we need to do something about this. Yeah. So I might be heeding your advice very soon. Well, and the other side of it too is, is I think watches can be really limiting for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of athletes that I've had who due to either forgetting their watch or a malfunction during a race mm -hmm. or even a big workout where they literally could not rely on it. They had no feedback where that's led to breakthroughs. Yeah. Um, mm. you know, I, I had a woman years ago who was trying to run a 120 half marathon and her watch died like four miles in mm. and mm. Hillary Corno is her name in San Diego. And she ran first time she broke 120 and she didn't just break it. She shattered it. Wow. Um, and she ran 117 mm. and change. Wow. And like, we weren't like, that wasn't even on the radar. Like that wasn't, wasn't what we had talked about, but since she had nothing else to rely on, rely upon, she just started racing during the race instead of, mm -hmm. instead of wondering like, you know, am I, am I in that like 
you know, 605 plus or minus five second range that we had talked about, you know, but before the race, like, no, she just, she just raced. Mm -hmm. Um, and it led to this Mm -hmm. big breakthrough. And I think it opened her eyes to, you know, what was possible if she didn't constantly overanalyze these things. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes, you know, at least in my experience, especially in a race, because you get that magical race feeling and you're wearing your kit and your shoes and maybe you're you're full of adrenaline. So you go out a little fast and you start to see splits that make you nervous because you're like, did I go out too fast? And maybe you did. And the question is, can I can I hold this or actually even negative split at the end? And if you sort of remove that watch from from that situation, then you re- you're really tuned into how you feel. Exactly. And if you say, I'm feeling good, I can keep feeling good as opposed to I ran a six minute mile and that wasn't the plan. Um, uh oh, you you remove that kind of panic that you have during the race. Yeah, I no, I I agree. And um, as a little bit of an aside, and this wasn't on my list, but one thing I continue to do today, I don't race a lot of cross country anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't think I raced any last fall, um, but I did the year before that. Uh, no, I did race, race one last fall. I refused to race cross country with a watch. Um, mm. I, not even a, a basic chrono watch. Like I, I will go completely like bare wristed in cross country because to me, that's just pure racing. It doesn't matter what yeah. time you yeah. run. Um, even if you're trying to run faster on a course that you've run before, like it should be about racing and, and beating the other people. And there's a purity to it that I, I really love. Mm-hmm. And, and even though now, like I still, you know, I probably run five, six days a week with a GPS watch. If it's a cross country race, nope, nothing, nothing on my wrist, just racing yeah. people. Yeah. Nice. I find that too, when I'm doing my own splits during a workout and I have my coach uh, doing, t- taking splits as well, hers are, are pretty much always faster. So I'm like, why am, why am I even bothering with my own watch? <laughs> She's just, you know, I like her splits better. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the next life lesson that I think we can all agree on, but we want to know your your reasoning behind it is never bet against Meb Kofleski. I mean, I think that, I would never bet against it. I think it speaks for itself. But if you go through his entire career, all the way back to high school, before people even really knew who he was, and I'm fortunate in that I have a great relationship with Meb, and he's told many of these stories, but people have always counted him out or they've never Mm -hmm. considered him a serious contender, despite the fact that he's done these pretty amazing things. And he, you know, he's gotten written off time and time again. Um, You know, he won the 2009 New York City Marathon Mm -hmm. and to a lot of people, it was like this this big surprise. Um, And then Nike dropped him, you know, right Mm -hmm. after that, basically, because they were like, oh, he's, you know, he's too old and he's not marketable anymore. And he proved them wrong. I mean, he went he went and won, you know, he went and won um, the Olympic trials in 2012. And that surprised a lot of people. And he won Boston, you know, 2014. Mm -hmm, No one had that on his radar. I mean, even going back 2012, um, at the Olympics, he was the only American male to finish the Olympic marathon that year. And he finished mm-hmm. fourth, um, clawed his way in and no one had him, I think even finishing in the top 10. I mean, he just, he gets, I, I don't know why, I just don't know why. Um, but he gets overlooked and obviously he's retired now. Um, mm-hmm. but he got overlooked for his entire career. And then he would, I, I don't even say come out of nowhere. Cause I mean, to me, it wasn't much of a surprise, but he would just like, you know, when the chips were down, he would just show up and he would have a, he would always have a great race. And when it counted most, um, he was the guy that, 
you know, you could, you could always count on. So I think that's just like a, you know, this is a random collection of, of kind of like life lessons, but yeah. you know, in terms of, you know, in terms of running, um, that's one that I, you know, I keep coming back to. Um, and, and I don't know if it was because he was born in Eritrea and there's people who look at him and say, oh, well, he's not really American. He's from East African. I mean, he's every bit American as, as you or yeah. I am. Um, but whenever the previews would come up for the Olympics and he's one of the three guys there, I mean, he'd, you know, more often than not, um, especially 2012, 2016, you know, he wasn't the one that people were talking about or covering in the right. media or when's the next American male going to win Boston. Yeah. Um, in right. 2014, it was like all about Ryan Hall, Ryan Hall, Ryan, Ryan Hall. Yeah. And it's like, you know, Meb took the race from early on and, and did it and, and late in his career too. Um, so I think that's just like, he, he just had done that so many times, uh, during his career mm -hmm. that I, I think that's just like one of those things. And now, like, even though he's not racing, whatever, you know, whatever he decides that he wants to get involved in, like, I'm not going to bet against Meb Kofleski because he always finds a way to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the next one we wanted to talk about was try living somewhere else for a little while just to see what it's like, what you can learn and who you can meet. If it's not for you, you can always move back home. So we've talked a little bit about you grew up in, um, in Massachusetts. We know that you mm -hmm. can now count the Bay area as home, but have you lived anywhere else? And like, what have, what have those places, what are some things that you've learned from those places that you've lived? Yeah. So one of my biggest regrets in college was that I didn't study abroad. Mm. I wish I had. Um, and it was, it was challenging because I was competing in cross country and track mm. and, um, I did have a partial scholarship my, my last few years, but right after I graduated, um, I moved to Eugene, Oregon and I joined a post-collegiate training group there called team Eugene. Uh, and they had a relationship with Puma and some other, some other sponsors. And I'd never been to Eugene, Oregon prior to that. Uh, I didn't know anyone there and I had never lived outside of the state of Massachusetts. Yeah. So, so I went to school an hour from where I grew up. So I went to, I went to Eugene, Oregon and I mean, I was, God, I was 21 years old and <laughs> thought I knew everything and turned out I knew nothing at all. I had no money. Um, I think my dad and my mom could see that it was a terrible idea. But he's like, all right, well, I'm just going to let you go anyway yeah. and figure it out on figure it out on your own. Mm -hmm. um, long story short, I I didn't last uh, I didn't last the summer there. I was there two months. Mm -hmm. I was there like September. Actually, no, it was, yeah, September, October. Um, and that's the first time I'd ever been away from home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, aside from the fact that I couldn't find a job there and it was hard to make friends, um, I just felt, you know, I felt really lonely and mm -hmm. I wasn't crazy about the town. I, I had this romantic vision of it yeah. in my head, like, oh, this is track town mm -hmm. USA. It's going to be awesome. Um, but I mean, the time of year that I was there and, and you know, this was 2004, um, there, there wasn't much, there wasn't much going on there. I was like very much disappointed. So I went home, um, you know, just homesick more than anything else and trying to figure out like what I was going to do and end up staying, in Massachusetts, uh, the next like four years or six years, sorry, till like 2010. And I'd bought a house in 2008, uh, not far from where I grew up and had just sort of thought like, okay, well, this is, you know, this is it. I'm like going to be like everyone, pretty much everyone else who's, who's from this place. Like, I'm just going to live here the rest of my life. Uh, and this is, this is going to be it. And then I had the opportunity to, um, take a job at competitor magazine, Dot com, which was based in San Diego. And it was, 
the opportunity that I was looking for, but I never, I hadn't spent much time in California. Um, the only time I'd love, ever lived away from home was this two months in Oregon. I at least had a job to go to, but it was actually for less money than I was making um, back home in Massachusetts. And, you know, I, I had that lesson from 2004 where I was like, you know what, I, what do I have to lose? Mm-hmm. Like I can, I can give this a shot. And if I don't like living in California, if I get homesick again, if the job isn't what I expected it to be, I know I can always move back home. I've done it before. Right. Um, so like I, it just kind of, you know, I felt like I had permission to, to go out there and, and do that. And I mean, here I am 10 years later, uh, still living in California, mm-hmm. have not moved back to Massachusetts. I, I never would have guessed that, you know, I would have, I've, I've, I would have been here for this long um, at this point. And we just bought a house last fall. And I can say with some confidence, I don't think I'm going anywhere now. Um, but, you know, I, I'm glad that, you know, I I took that risk out of college and, you know, checked out Oregon for a little while. And even though it didn't go well, it just it let me know that there's more out there and it's worth exploring. And if for whatever reason, it's not a good fit from a permanent standpoint, like you can always come back home. But unless you take that leap at some point, you're just never going to know. How do you feel about Northern California versus Southern San Diego? I'm, I'm from Los Angeles and I'm a, I'm, I think I'm in the Bay area to stay at least as long as I'm in California. (laughs) Yeah. So for me, I find the Bay area to be a nice, happy medium between my East coast Mm -hmm. roots and the, three and a half years I spent in San Diego when I got to San Diego and the entire time that I was there, honest to God, I felt like I was on vacation yeah. the entire time. I was working full time. Um, I was, I was plenty busy, but I just felt like I was on vacation the entire time. Um, and it was great. I mean, I met some cool people. The weather was wonderful. Um, you know, definitely like complete opposite lifestyle, um, from the East coast it was almost a little too slow, a little too laid back for mm-hmm. me. Um, San Diego is a coastal desert and and that was new for me uh, coming from New England where, you know, you have four very distinct seasons. You have a lot of trees. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got different types of landscape and terrain. Um, so it was just like it was like almost too drastic of a shift. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when we moved up here in 2014, so now I've been here six years, um, it just it felt right. Like it felt right almost, almost immediately, um, in terms of the pace of life, in terms of, you know, the, the landscape and the terrain, um, the weather here is, you know, not quite as nice all the time. I mean, it's certainly nicer than Massachusetts, but it's <laughs> not as consistent as, as San Diego. And I like that. Yeah. I mean, I like that it rains over the winter yeah. time and, um, that it can get a little cold at certain, at certain points of the year. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would say I'm definitely uh, Bay Area through and yeah. through now. What brought you up here? My wife took a job okay. in San Francisco in uh, well, at the end of 2013. She didn't start until 2014, and she needed to be in the office, mm-hmm. and that was that was it. She's still at that job, and we've moved a couple times since then. Um, but we're here to stay. Nice. At least I hope we're here yeah. to stay. <laughs> Yeah, Marin is so beautiful. I don't get out there as much as I'd like, but it's just uh, just amazing. Um, our next thing on the list is um, talking about your output depends on your input. Garbage in mm-hmm. equals garbage out. If you want to produce high-quality output, you first need to focus on making sure you're getting solid input. 
Want to be a better writer? You better be reading some good books. Want to become a faster runner? You need to put in more quality miles first. So how do you evaluate the quality of your inputs and and how is this manifested in all you do? Well, I think in, in general, in very like, like every aspect area of our lives, like we're evaluated by our output, Mm -hmm. um, you know, at, at work, Mm -hmm. like we're evaluated on like what we do, what we produce. Um, if you're a writer, it's like, how many books have you written? Are, you know, are they, are they any good as a runner? It's like, what are your personal bests? Have you qualified for Boston? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so outputs are what get, you know, all the attention. Um, but, you know, those, those things just don't happen. Um, you know, you just don't write, you know, or at least if you're a good writer, like you just don't write like, you know, 19 best-selling books. You know, if you're a good runner, you know, you don't just um, win races or, you know, set personal bests like fairly consistently or at least putting out like consistent race results, things like that. Um, all that depends on, you know, on your input. Um, so, you know, I think it's like if, you know, if you're running, if, if you're not running many miles, like you can't expect to become a better faster, more consistent runner. I mean, at, you know, at work, depending on, you know, what your, what your situation is like, you know, you can't just be making stuff all the time. Like there's gotta be some knowledge that went into that, some experience that went into that. I mean, that's your, that's your input. Um, you know, for me as a, as a writer, um, it's writing's not, you know, easy for me, but I'm, I'm consistent with it. I've definitely like improved in it. Um, but I, I wouldn't, be able to write what I do or the way that I do or in the style that I do if I haven't, if I hadn't read a lot of things first, um, you know, it just doesn't like that output just doesn't fall out of the sky. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think it's just like whatever it is that you're committing yourself to, whether it's a a professional pursuit, personal pursuit, athletic pursuit, um, you know, you're always going to like, we're outcome oriented people for better or worse. Um, or you're going to think about the outcome of something at, at, at some point. Um, but you've got to think about, um, what's going into Mm -hmm. that, uh, or, or what needs to go into it so that, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're producing, or you're going to be judged on is of, is of high quality. So, you know, it's, you know, it's much like uh, when people talk about diet, you know, yeah. garbage, garbage yeah. in equals garbage out, eat a crappy diet, like you're not gonna have good health. Yep. Um, and you're gonna have problems later on in life. And, and I think that goes for, you know, for anything else, like if you know, you run a lot of junk miles, or you're not consistent in your training, you're not going to have very consistent race results. Um, you know, if you're if you're not reading books, or you're not setting yourself to a um, consistent writing schedule, like you're, you're not going to have consistent quality output. I mean, that's just, I mean, I think that's proven itself over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious, what are your inputs as a writer? What authors have influenced you and, and what does your writing practice look like? So, um, I, I have, I'm looking at my, my book shelf right <laughs> now and I have, um, I mean, I could go through like all the, you know, all the different titles I, I have, I mean, I'll read, I'll read anyone. I don't have like certain mm-hmm. writers that, um, I follow right now. I, I just finished a book called Barbarian Days by a guy named William Finnegan. And it's about, it's actually about surfing. I've never oh. surfed a day in my life. Um, but I found that there were a lot of parallels in, you know, his storytelling, um, about surfing versus what I've experienced in running. Um, a book that I actually just let a friend borrow the other day is called Why We Run by Bernd Heinrich. Mm-hmm. And he is a naturalist, um, 
based in Maine, and he actually gave me a, a different book that he wrote called um, Life in the Woods, and it's about like living in the Maine woods for a while. So those are some recent ones. Um, Sebastian Younger's Tribe is a is a favorite of mine, short, but um, great read. Uh, Being Mortal by Atul mm-hmm. Gawande. Um, I have that on my bookshelf right now. I have a lot of old like dorky running books and, and those aren't so much for like reading right. as it relates to writing. I mean, a lot of that probably more directly applies to, you know, coaching and what I do um, in, you know, in that regard, I've got, let's see, I'm going through, like, I'm, I'm trying to like not pull out the, all the dorky running titles. I've got like, <laughs> I've got Born to Run by Christopher McDougall on here. Um, I've got Two Hours by Ed Caesar. I mean, Ed Caesar is a good example. He's actually someone I read quite a bit. So Two Hours is the only running book that he's ever okay. wrote. And it was about the quest for the sub two hour marathon. But he's a writer for The Atlantic and then uh, Wired, sorry, Wired, The New Yorker. I think he might have written something for The Atlantic, uh, but he does a lot of long form like magazine journalism. And I'll read anything. Ed and I have become friends. I'll read anything that he writes. Um, and most of it's not about running at all. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those are just a, a few selections of stuff that I've read like fairly recently um, that that I would count like as my input. But I mean, I've read, you know, tons of books over the years. I mean, Paulo Coelho mm-hmm. is probably my, you know, what, probably my favorite writer, I would say. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, the the Alchemist, um, the Pilgrimage are, are two good books. I mean, Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway yeah. is a yeah. favorite of mine. The Great Gatsby. I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've forgotten the amount of books yeah. I've read over the years, but you know, that all of those have sort of infirm, informed my perspective as a writer in some way, whether it's like stylistically or how they've used certain words, um, how they've structured their stories. And I mean, I'm not writing those kind mm-hmm. of books necessarily, but you can pull a yeah. lot of those principle principles out and, you know, apply it to the type of writing that, that, you know, you, you do do, uh, or that I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm curious too, because like when I read your newsletter, I, well, I've heard your voice on your podcast, so I almost read it in your voice and it feels like Mm -hmm. a conversation. It doesn't feel like a list or, you know, some, I don't know, formal thing. Um, it feels very relatable and, and sort of, friendly in a way. And so I'm I'm wondering how yeah. if that's deliberate and how you approach how you made the choice to approach your newsletter in in the stylistic way that you did. Yeah, well, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment because that's exactly what it's how it's supposed to read. I want it to be personal without being personalized. Mm-hmm. Um it should feel like an email that you're getting from someone that you know or have gotten to know and I want people to or you know read it through my voice, which I mean, if I, I guess I started the podcast, what, like two and a half years ago. So now you can actually hear right. my voice. Um, but for people who hadn't, um, I try to be consistent enough in the way that I write it, that if you've, if you've read enough issues of the morning shakeout, um, over time, like you kind of get a feel for my tone and my diction and, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and I try really hard to be consistent with that, even though the content itself changes from, from week to week. And I want it to feel like it's not, it should be able to be read through. I mean, without, if you click on the links, it's going to take you a lot longer, Mm -hmm. but I mean, you should be able to read through it in 10 minutes or less. Um, that was, you know, that was my goal. And, 
you know, I wanted it to feel like, yeah, like an email that you, you got from a friend that you look forward to getting every week. Like it's got some personal updates in there. I mean, and, and even, you know, the name itself is very deliberate. So it's called the morning shakeout. And like, for me, you know, the, the morning shakeout is like something I started doing in college. I would, I would run, um, like three or four miles real easy in the morning before doing our afternoon workout. And oftentimes I did it by myself, but sometimes I could get a teammate or two to go along with me. And we would just sort of like, you know, shoot the breeze about whatever was going on, whether it was, you know, on our team, amongst our friend groups, uh, in the sport of running. Um, and because I'm such a big running dork, a lot of it was in the sport of running. Mm. And and that's really the the spirit that I created the the newsletter in. I wanted it to feel like, oh, this is this would be like going out for like just a short casual mm. run, you know, conversational pace. And like we're talking about, you know, the I mean, not that any races are happening right now, but <laughs> the Boston Marathon that yeah. happened last weekend yeah. and like what some of those storylines would be or, you know, oh, I haven't seen you since last week. Like, you know, what have you been up to, you know, in your life? Or, I mean, I majored in philosophy in college, so I think about a lot of things and like, you know, sometimes on a run, like I'll just wax philosophical yeah. Yeah. Um, for for a while. And I, I do, I mean, that's what I do in the newsletter every yeah. week. Uh, and that's how I, you know, that's how I want it to you know, to come across. So, yeah, we love it. It's uh, definitely comes across and it, it makes, it makes it really it, it mission accomplished because it is something mm-hmm. that I think all of us look forward to for all of the, the varied content, you know, the running content is great. And that kind of is a perfect place to sometimes jump into things, but then I'll find myself on like a website that I'd never been to. And then reading an author that I'd never thought of, mm-hmm. or thinking about, you know, philosophy or something, um, which is yeah. Lovely. Um, that's, that's great. And then, and I doing my job, yes. I guess. <laughs> uh, two satisfied customers here. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So we have two more lessons that we want to chat through before we kind of dive into just sure. our rapid fire. So, um, enough is enough. We're wired to want more, um, and or better, more miles, another personal best, more friends, a bigger bank account, more stuff, more recognition, a bigger house, another pint of ice cream, one more glass of wine, the list goes on. Learn to be content with what you have and appreciate when your cup is full. I think this is such a beautiful sentiment and something that, um, like, as runners and as any kind of driven person, especially people we know in the Bay area, I think the tension is always around like going all in on a goal, going all in on a passion Mm -hmm. and that idea of being content or that idea of like enough is enough. I'm curious how you kind of think about and work through those tension, that tension. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. I mean, I, I wrote these out because they're all things that I've given a lot of thought to or, you know, struggled with. And I've certainly been, you know, at at various points of my life, um, I've put a lot of pressure on myself because I wasn't as fast as some of my teammates or my competitors or yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly here in the Bay area, I think when I, I moved here initially, um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty fast pace and you want to, keep up with all of that. You feel like you need to like, you know, be a part of a, a startup and you need to found something and, and stuff like that. Like it was just always like, you know, trying, trying to keep pace. And and when you, when you don't like, you can feel terrible about that. Um, and for me, like on the other side of it, as, as a coach who works with athletes, um, and this isn't just for the professionals and the elites that I work with, but even, you know, age groupers, you know, they see what their friends are doing on Strava or, 
people that they know are putting up at other races across the country and, and it makes them feel, you know, inadequate. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the things I, I tell them a lot, I'm like, I'm like, you are enough, like mm -hmm. as, as you are, like what you're doing is, is enough because you start questioning yourself. Um, and this applies to running and other aspects of your life. Like you ask yourself like, Oh, am I, you know, am I putting in enough hours at work? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you're feeling bad about your relationships at home, am I spending enough time like, you know, with my family, should I cut something else out? Am I putting in enough miles? Um, am I doing enough speed workouts or long runs or, or whatever it is? And I think you've got to learn how to step back from all of that and evaluate a situation for what it is. And I mean, in some cases, yeah, you do need to do a little bit more if you want to get where you need to go. Um, but I've just found through my own experience and working with other people who are struggling with this as well, like most of the time, like you're, you know, you're doing enough. And, and I think it's just being able to, you know, accept that and be at peace with it um, is what really allows, you know, breakthroughs to happen. It's not necessarily, you know, doing a little bit more, accumulating a little bit more, getting something that's a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was thinking about this, this, um, this lesson, I actually whipped out my much underlined copy of the passion paradox because it kind of reminded me of how they talk about mm -hmm. like the kind of rethinking and balancing and kind of giving up the idea of being balanced you know it's not about like at times you, that you have to constantly be thinking like enough is enough and i need to strive for more but like there are maybe moments in your life where you agree and you kind of think very strategically about like going in the direction of like I know this is going to be unbalanced. I'm kind of purposely putting myself in that like growth phase where I'm focused on like on a different outcome. I'm focused on getting to a place. I'm focused on this goal versus the moments where you then have to kind of pull back and how like unsustainable that that kind of real focus is um, and then kind of settling more into the like, okay, like let's recalibrate enough is enough um, and just like that that shift that kind of has to happen with with goals. Yeah, exactly. And to piggyback off of that, one of the things like Brad and Steve write about in the passion paradox is, is, is exactly as you just described, there are going to be periods where, you know, you're putting a little bit more mm -hmm. into one thing than you are everything else. So, you know, on the micro level, or on like a, you know, maybe that day or maybe that week, like things are out of out of balance, but at some point, like it's got to yeah. shift. Um, and if you're, if you're doing that in an effective manner, like, over time, when you zoom out on the whole, like there actually is balance, but it's like, you, right. you know, that balance is created by, you know, different periods of, yeah. you know, unbalance and, and that is okay. Yeah. I, um, a lot of my, I work in healthcare and actually my focus is, was on physician burnout and professional fulfillment and sort of rethinking. Now it's on just the entire healthcare system. So not just physicians, but every other um, person that is part of that system as well. Um, but there's always this notion in the workplace that comes up around work-life balance. And we've really tried to get away from mm -hmm. the balance word and talk more about work-life integration and what, yeah. what that looks like at different phases in your career and how you can design that deliberately so that you can have a little bit more self-compassion when you do miss your kid's soccer game because you're really focused on work right now. Or when you do decide to go to your kid's soccer game because maybe work is taking a back seat and that one isn't better than the other. It's just making decisions at different points in life about what's right for you and designing a system that allows for that. Um, because this idea of balance is 
a fallacy, then we're, we always feel like we're failing. Yeah, I think that's on the money. Um, I recorded a podcast for my show earlier today, and, and it's one of my my favorite episodes. It might be my favorite mm-hmm. episode. And it was with my college coach, Karen Bowen. Mm-hmm. And she has been at Stonehill College now for 23 years as the head coach for men's and women's cross country. And she was head coach for men's and women's track until this past season when she stepped back and, and just, um, she's 64 years Mm -hmm. old now. Um, but she stepped back just to coach the distance runners and not the whole program. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, um, about being a a female coach Mm -hmm. in, in the collegiate environment because there aren't many of them. And, and there are a number of reasons for that, which she got into, and I won't spoil that here. Um, but she also, you know, I, I, we also talked about just like, you know, how, how hard it is because she, you know, she's been married for the last 40 plus years. She's had three kids and she talked about, she's like, you know, she's like, I, I realized pretty early on that when I, you know, if I decide to say yes to something, like, what am mm-hmm. I saying no to? Yeah. And I think you've got to, and, and I'm paraphrasing her right now. She's like, I think you've got to, you know, really understand that early on, whether you're a coach or anything. I mean, we all have busy lives, right? And commutes and um, long days in the office, most of us and um, things we want to do with our, our family. And she's like, I, you know, I had weekends where I was on a, a bus with you know, the two teams going mm-hmm. to Pennsylvania for a meet, which meant I wasn't at, you know, I wasn't at home with my kids. Um, and like, you know, I, I knew I was making that decision, but I also knew that there were going to be times of the year when it was time to prioritize them. And I was, you know, going to have to say no to coaching a clinic mm-hmm. or, you know, to, to doing something else that was outside of my, my day to day. And I, I thought that was like really profound and, and, you know, even people who aren't trying to be coaches could pull a lesson out of that, that, yeah, whatever, you know, whenever you say yes to something, like think about the things that you're saying no to, and that can really be perfect, uh, perspective shaping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So we have one last lesson before we get into some rapid fire questions for you. Okay. Um, and, and this is actually, so when I saw, I saw this on your newsletter and then I listened to two podcasts this week. I mean, they were both, uh, you know, Brad and Steve's The Growth Equation podcast, but it was the one mm-hmm. they did with Shalane Flanagan, and then um, a one from one from a few weeks ago about leadership. But but both of these came up in the, in those podcasts, and it was mood follows action, not the other way around. If you want to change your mental state, change your physical state first. Um, you know, and Shalane was talking about it in the context of being a new mom and uh, motivating herself to get out the door. And she's knowing that if she gets out the door to go for a short run, she's going to feel better. She's going to be a better mom. And then in the leadership context, it was about the importance of of physical activity in anything you do in mm-hmm. improving your mindset and your mood. Um, so I'm curious, you know, how you interpret this and what this means for you. Yeah. So I got this mood falls action in, I I attributed it to rich role, which is, I I think is where, where Brad got it as well, but they did write about it, um, in peak performance. And and I don't think it was rich roles original idea either. I think it's again, another one of those things that gets passed down, um, and is, is applicable to many different areas of, of our life. But I mean, I see it a lot, 
again with the athletes that I coach and I've experienced this myself where you're just waiting to be inspired or you're mm-hmm. waiting to be, you know, motivated for something. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, that's a mood. Um, that's a, you know, that's a state of being and you're like, okay, well, when I, you know, when the inspiration strikes me, um, you know, then I will, you know, then I will go out and start pursuing this thing. Um, and it's just like that, that's not an effective recipe. Mm -hmm. It's, it's gotta go the other way around. I mean, you know, thinking about, um, since I spoke about coaching, I'll, I'll start there. Like I have, I have athletes who are like, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'm like, you know, feeling inspired to like go out and, you know, go out and run today. And it's like, you just like Shalane was saying, like, sometimes you just got to get out the mm-hmm. door. Like there, there are a million reasons why, you know, you're not feeling inspired. Like you just, sometimes you just got to get out the door and, and move first. And like that inspiration will follow you, you know, once you get moving, cause your psyche's working against you to tell you like, Oh no, it's okay. You can like stay in and just like, you know, kick your feet up. But you know, most of the time, like people are going to feel better when they go out and they put the miles in or, you see this with writers all the time. They're like waiting to be inspired before they, you know, write an article or or they write a book. I'm like, well, look, I've, I've written a book and I've written like, you know, at this point, probably over a thousand articles. And it's like, if, if I waited for inspiration to strike, I, I would have yeah. gotten like maybe 10 done. Um, sometimes you just got to put your head down and get started. Like you got to take that first step and, you know, doesn't mean that you're going to, f- knock it all out in in one fell swoop. But, you know, that's what's going to start building, you know, that momentum. That's when the inspiration is going to, you know, continue to build. But you've got to, you know, you've got to move first. You can't wait for, you know, you can't wait for the mood to to strike you. You've got to create it yourself. And the best way to, you know, create a mood is to take action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I think that's true. It's funny. We're like, who do we attribute this to? But it's just, good advice in general. It almost doesn't matter who said it first, right? It's just true. Um, Well, thank you so much. We're going to wrap up here with some rapid fire questions. If, if you're, if you're ready, if you want to play fire away. All right. Favorite place for a long run in the Bay area. Ooh. um, The, I just call it the lakes loop in the Marin County watershed. And that is around um, you can make it as long as you want, but we'll say Phoenix Lake, um, Bon Tempe and Alpine. And that can be, I mean, for me, it's usually an 11 or 13 mile run. And I used to be able to do it from our old apartment in Kentfield. Nice. Nice. Favorite race distance. Mm. I got to say the mile. Mm. You're our first miler. <laughs> first answer to that question um (laughs) intervals or tempo intervals okay uh this might be controversial uh race day shoes race day shoes yes what's the distance i guess yeah that's and now i need to think about it okay what do you wear what uh do you like for a mile and what do you like for a marathon so what I would like to wear for the mile, I don't own a pair of them myself, but I have tried them on and, and I would have worn them this past week uh, had I had a pair. But New Balance has a shoe called the 5280 and it's made specifically for the road mile. It's like a super niche shoe, um, but it's got a carbon plate uh, and it's meant to get you like up on your toes and, and being able to to really rip. But I don't have a pair that I, that I own myself. So I actually ran that mile in a different pair of New Balances called the Fuel Cell Racer, which I don't believe is been 
released yet, but it's their carbon plated, you know, bouncy foam type yeah. of shoe. And and I would actually wear that. Um, I haven't worn it in a marathon yet, but I would wear it in a marathon in half marathon 10k. Uh, and I have worn Vaporflies in the past, but I've moved on. Okay. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, I'm excited for the New Balance shoes. I actually, I ordered the the Fuel Cell TC. I guess it's the yeah the training version. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it keeps getting delayed. I keep getting an email like your shoes are now. They have a new ship date, and this has been for a month. So I have a pair of those. They sold out of the initial batch pretty right. quickly, and that's the shoe that complements this racer that I talked about. So it's a little bit. It's a little bit heavier. It's a different foam, but same last. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And you would use that one more for training and for the racer, training. obviously for for racing. Um, but I love that shoe for tempo runs and quicker long runs. Um, yeah, I think you'll enjoy cool. it. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, your long run fuel. Long run fuel. For the last um, several marathons, I've carried Morton on me, mm-hmm. uh, and I've I've used the gels, and I've been in a situation too where I've been able to to grab the drink mix in in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, and beforehand, I use Generation Ucan. I do that before long runs and long races. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two of my favorite products. Um, your favorite sport other than running, and this can either be to watch or to play. Basketball. Basketball. Grew up nice. playing hoop. Are you now a fan of the Warriors? Or are you no, Celtics? God, or? No, God, no. <laughs> that was a very hard, quick answer. Yeah, no. <laughs> Celtics fan for life. I'm still a New England sports fan, and nothing yeah. will ever change that. Okay. So of the New England teams, like, what's your diehard? I mean, I basketball is my Basket, favorite yeah. sport, so, so I'd, I'd say the Celtics. Um, but I'll okay. root for all of them. I mean, I I don't watch football consistently in the fall, but when the Patriots hit the playoffs, I always watch and pretend that I care. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah. So growing up in LA, having a a dad who is a Celtics fan and the sort of Celtics Laker rivalry that was always a difficult time in our house, for sure. That's a- yeah, it's a big rivalry. I mean, my, you know, my my last roommate before I moved in with my wife back in San Diego, a good friend of mine named Omar, also grew up in Southern California, big Lakers fan, and we would, um, you know, he would have his Kobe Bryant jersey on, and I had this old Antoine Walker jersey on, and we would watch we would watch Celtics versus Lakers and just give each other a hard time. It's a, it's amazing that we were able to live with each other for two years. Oh wow, yeah, my um. My dad's father, my grandfather, he passed away. I think it was like, gosh, must have been 2007. Um, but I think the best gift he ever got before he passed away was the Red Sox winning another World Series because he was convinced he would never see it. So this is kind of morbid, but we're like, at least he got to see that and could literally die happy. I mean, so, that yeah. no, I mean, as someone who grew up in – Massachusetts. I mean, that doesn't sound morbid to be at all to me at all because I I know um, many folks who felt the same way. Like mm-hmm. their their lifelong like their dying wish is literally for the Red Sox <laughs> yeah. to win the World Series, or was for the Red Sox to win the World Series yeah. sometime in their lifetime. Yep, he got it. All right, last question: burger, burrito, or pizza? 
Oh, I love all three. If I had to choose, <laughs> if I if I had to choose one, um, and maybe this is you know this is California's influence on me. I'll go with burrito because okay. I I think it's the perfect food. You can get everything that you need wrapped into this nice neat tortilla. Yeah, I'm a pizza girl myself. I think Bridget's a burger girl, but. Between the three of us, we've got it covered. I mean, I, I love them all. I actually had a burrito yesterday. I'm going to have pizza tonight. And actually, we had turkey burgers on Thursday, on uh, no Wednesday. So yeah, I mean, I've had, I will have had all three of those things three days in a row: turkey burger on on Thursday, uh, Wednesday, Thursday had burrito. Tonight's pizza night. Uh, so what's your favorite? Sorry, la- one more question, just because my boyfriend and I are obsessed with pizza and trying every pizza place we can. What's your favorite favorite pizza place in the Bay Area? Um, the place is called Tony Tutos. Okay. It is in Ross common. It used to be in mill Valley and then they got booted from their spot, uh, because the, the owners of that space wanted to knock it down and, and create some like, you know, bougie, uh, you know, building, uh, where they had like, you know, this fancy bakery and yoga and all that stuff. Um, so he, he was out of business for a couple years, not even a couple years, it was like a year and a half. And he finally found a spot in Ross common, which was exactly half a mile from where we used to live in Kentfield. So we would walk up there on Fridays and, and get pizza. And even now I, I think we're going to order out from there tonight and have it delivered by, um, eat dine in Marin. So nice. Yeah. Thank Thank you you so much for taking the time. We really enjoyed talking to you. And we look forward to all future episodes and editions of The Morning Shakeout. And we're, I feel, I know that we feel really lucky to have you in this running community. So thanks so much. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me. And congratulations on launching Runners in the Bay. I think it's, uh, you know, I thought about it. I think it was long overdue. And I'm glad that it's finally out there in the world. And I think you guys are doing a great job with it. Thank Thank you. you. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode with Mario Fraioli. You can follow Mario on Instagram and Twitter at Mario Fraioli. You can also follow him on Strava. Follow The Morning Shakeout on Instagram and Twitter at The AM Shakeout and head to Mario's website, themorningshakeout.com, to subscribe to the newsletter. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Runners of the Bay. If you like what you heard, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon.